Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Berg. Tonight, is there a right way to make a cup of tea? Is there a wrong way? Fighting words for some, especially in Britain, it turns out. No surprise there. It's all something a chemist and author in American has found out by suggesting that you should add a pinch of salt to make the perfect cup. It's one of the many suggestions in her book called Steeped. She joins me to spill the tea on all the controversies she's been stirring up unwittingly. Archaeologists have uncovered a cluster of lost cities in the Amazon rainforest, an area that may well have been home to at least 10,000 farmers around 2,000 years ago, called an entirely human-engineered landscape built by skilled urban planners. We dig into the discovery and what it means. A much-anticipated decision today from the UN's top court in The Hague in a case filed by South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza and asking for it to order a halt to its military offensive in the Palestinian territory. Israel rejected the accusation of genocide and had asked the court to throw the charges out altogether. An interim decision, though, from the 17-judge panel at the International Court of Justice did not dismiss the case and did not order a ceasefire, but did order Israel to take emergency steps to prevent genocide in Gaza and allow humanitarian aid into the area. Former Canadian Ambassador to Israel John Allen gives us his take on the decision. But first, a jury in New York City today ruled that former President Donald Trump must pay writer E. Jean Carroll more than $83 million in damages for repeatedly defaming her. The nine-person federal court jury reached that verdict in just three hours. Carroll says it was a great victory for every woman who stands up when she's been knocked down and a huge defeat for every bully who's tried to keep a woman down. Trump disagrees. He plans to appeal. So what happens next? Will he have to cough up the cash? We find out. But let's start in the place formerly known as New Netherland, New York City, where a jury today ruled that former President Donald Trump must pay writer E. Jean Carroll more than $83 million in damages for repeatedly defaming her. The nine-person federal court jury reached a verdict in under three hours. The award includes $11 million for damage to Carroll's reputation, $7.3 million for emotional harm and other damages, and $65 million in punitive damage. These are all U.S. figures, by the way. So just uh, add 30% to that, you get the Canadian figure. Uh, reporter Aaron Katursky explains how the damages were calculated. The plaintiffs had not put a specific dollar figure in the jurors' heads, but they said repairing the damage to her reputation would cost about $12 million. They said she deserved at least another $12 million for all of the, the, the attacks and, and the fear and the terror that, that it caused her. And then they asked for an untold millions more in punitive damages to punish Donald Trump, to make him stop, as they put it. Make him stop. Trump had already been found liable for defaming Carol while he was president for, by mocking her allegations that he had sexually abused her. So this jury was only tasked with determining how much she should be paid in damages. So $83.3 million, uh, was that number. Trump actually testified in all of this for about uh, was it five minutes? Uh, it started all started off on on uh, January the sixteenth and wrapped up today. Trump showing his customary deference for the rule of law and the courts called the decision by a jury of his peers absolutely ridiculous and a witch hunt. His lawyer says they will appeal. We will immediately appeal. We will set aside that ridiculous jury. And I just want to remind you all of one thing: I will continue with President Trump to fight for everybody's First Amendment right to speak. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense legally. But anyway, uh, Jean Carroll, Eugene Carroll says this is a great victory for every woman who stands up when she's been knocked down and a huge defeat for every bully who's tried to keep a woman down. Joining me now is Heather Cocolo. She's an adjunct professor of law at the New York Law School. Uh, Heather, thanks for your time tonight. 
Hi, thank you. Yes, my pleasure. Uh, tell me a bit about this $83.3 million. Was, is that, uh, was that considered a lot given what, uh, what this jury had to decide? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And it's really, you know, it's, it's difficult to weigh um, thinking about, you know, how are we going to assign this monetary amount to the actions that occurred? And so interestingly, right, so is this an outrageous amount? Well, generally, so, you know, aptly, right, I think you know, I just heard that, uh, you know, your listeners learned, of course, that the compensatory damages, right, that came in the amount of that, you know, pain and suffering for about like, I think, seven, about seven million, seven point three million, plus that other eleven million to rebuild her reputation, right? So what does that come to in my math, by the way? I'm terrible, oh, but it, you know, 18, 19, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhere about that, like eight million ish, you know. So the idea is when, so, you know, we, we obviously see like this huge chunk, right, being punitive damages. And generally, we expect that, or, or the range that appellate courts, for instance, will generally feel comfortable with when there's obviously going to be, you know, a question was, was this too much? Was this over the top? The range that you know, are comfortable with is usually you look at maybe somewhere between like three to five percent um, or times. I'm sorry. Sorry. Times, Multiplication yeah, times, of, right. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Three to five times the amount of the compensatory damages. So this 83 million kind of really falls falls within that you know i think it's what right. maybe like four yeah yeah more or less in there a reminder then to, to listeners because this was somewhat complicated what this jury was tasked with deciding because this didn't have anything to do with whether or not he had done this that was already decided that is right this was this was ex- just about the damages that should be assigned as a result of the defamation in 2019 what uh, I mean, obviously, the announcement was they're going to appeal. Uh, do you think there's grounds for appeal here? I mean, I know this is obviously you can always try to appeal, but it strikes me just looking through some of the different commentary out there. This is going to be a tough one to appeal. Maybe they can appeal the amount, but it's a tough one to appeal uh, the jury's decision, period. It absolutely is. You're absolutely right. And, and it's, and it's, you know, courts, appellate courts, they're, they're, they're very reluctant, very hesitant to overturn um, or somehow, you know, reduce an award that a, that a jury unanimously, right, nine person jury unanimously decided. Um, so it's, it's a difficult hurdle. And I think in this case in particular, I think it's, it's, it's going to be pretty tough for Trump's team to be successful in an appeal. Um, I don't think that it's likely that this amount will somehow be reduced. Um, Question, of course, is, you know, how long is this whole process going to continue to take? Oh, and let's not forget, I mean, we, we also have that that five million that was awarded in the trial that happened, uh, what, you know, uh, 2022, I think, right? Or, yeah, not no. long ago. Yeah, so it's about 90, yeah not long ago. A, yeah, 93 million total. He's appealed that one too, by the way. So he hasn't coughed Absolutely. up anything yet. How likely then is, uh, is uh, uh, Donald J. Trump uh, going to have to 
cough up tens of millions of dollars to E. Jean Carroll. It looks at this point, at least according to the letter of the law, and we always know that uh, the former president likes to find ways around this, but um, Mm -hmm. that according to the letter of the law, he's going to have to cough up an awful lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Donald Trump has certainly had a it had quite the history of, of defrauding certain workers, creditors, whatnot, or attempting to get around what his obligations should be or are. So, I mean, the question is, you know, when will he need to cough up? How likely will this be? Um, these are these are great questions, right? How long are they going to tie this up in the court system? Um, I know with the with the that's the smaller amount, I think the five point five million has been sort of reserved with the court. But again, right, when will these funds actually make their way to, you know, E. Jean Carroll, et cetera, is, is, is an excellent question. And it could be years. Right. I mean, this is something that could be tied. What What is the process then? Just just to understand if, if this were to be mm-hmm. appealed, uh, where does where can it go from there? I mean, really, though, I mean, at, at this point in the game, honestly, once, you know, th- once once this is appealed and there's a final decision at that point, most likely it's not going to go any further. Most likely that's going to be the end of this line of, uh, you know, of, of, of continuing to fight this and argue this. There isn't really much recourse after that. Right. And I gather he's, I mean, just judging by his reaction to this as always, I gather he's going to refuse to pay. Uh, what could happen to, I mean, this is all in the realm, now we're in the realm of the hypothetical, obviously. But yeah. but if he refuses to pay, as one would suspect he will, what then what could happen? Could he end up, could he, he could conceivably, uh, given, given, depending on how things turn out, uh, he could conceivably end up in jail, no? Well, you know, we we actually we we did away with debtors' prison. <laughs> right, good enough. Good enough. <laughs> Although maybe there's a good reason for it, but yeah, no, but well, you know, I mean, there look, there are they could go after try to seize certain assets. Um, you know, there are ways that hypothetically that if you know that they were avenues that law- that the lawyers would try to take in order to recoup this money um, through any, you know, his personal holdings, his personal assets. Now, right, we know, I mean, obviously Trump, again, this, this, is, this has been his business, his history, and therefore he's, he's, he's very adept at, at making, at hiding, at, at making sure that, you know, whatever personal income money he has is tied up in, in a whole bunch of different, um, you know, holdings, areas, whatnot. Right. But again, yeah, there's there's always going to be an avenue. Um, but, yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's not going to be an easy, it's not going to be yeah. an, an easy windfall here at, at, by any. Well, a very unhappy Donald Trump tonight, no doubt. He kind of stormed it in at a court today. Ultimately, a jury of nine unanimously ruled that he uh, must pay, writer E. Jean Carroll, more than $83 million in damages for repeatedly defaming her. The verdict is the second for Carroll against Trump. A different jury last year found him liable for sexually abusing her in a New York City department store in the 1990s and for defaming her by mocking her claims after he left the White House. Heather, I mean, Gong Show might be too, because the judge did a good mm-hmm. job of keeping everything in control in this one, Judge Kaplan. But but Gong Show feels like kind of the right uh, description of what was going on. I mean, of course, the former president was being petulant, as he always is, and defying the court and speaking out of turn. But what was up with his lawyer? I mean, you, know, you can't, you, you can't, in fact, in, in, in a civil case, you can't claim incompetence, right? Uh, unlike a criminal case, incompetence of, of, of your lawyer. But 
This was a weird one. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. Well, you know, I guess it was. And yeah, it, what it is, is it, it is the Trump show. You know, what we have seen is that as these lawsuits against Donald Trump, and I'm talking even going back to, uh, you know, the congressional hearings, right, looking at and talking about what happened during January 6th, as we've seen these legal proceedings or these inquiries happen where Trump is retaining counsel, we have seen the quality of counsel just plummet because no one wants to risk their credibility or their license um, by getting behind this guy and supporting this guy. So what we see here are these attorneys that are are, are just pandering to the the dialogue and the uh, emotion that Donald Trump wants to see. So you see her being angry and belligerent and even so much as i think saying f that or f you or, or yeah, something she almost, wound, she almost wound up yeah. in, behind I mean, she almost wound up in the I, cells today apparently absolutely i mean i mean she was bordering on contempt of court a number of times but you know just her her demeanor was so unprofessional but beyond that Again, you know, she didn't seem to have much of a understanding of basic evidentiary rules. Um, she didn't seem to really understand how to impeach a witness, how to get evidence, um, or, or which evidence is going to be accepted into the court right. record. So it's well, it's won't that have an impact on an attempt to appeal? Though <laughs> wouldn't that make it feel <laughs> very difficult if you haven't questioned any of the evidence? Well, that's a good question. You know, I mean, well, will it have an impact? I think if anything, if, if, if anything, it'll, it'll just merely have an impact on whether or not the jury uh, was in any way swayed by any of this or somehow this contributed to their determination. But luckily, I mean, the judge was excellent in making sure that you know, he kept the courtroom as calm as he possibly could, given the circumstances. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of the interactions that were really concerning did occur outside the presence of the jury. Right. Right. Well, uh, Heather, thank you so much for that. Have a great weekend. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for talking. We're going to talk tea this half hour. It's no secret if you've been there or spent time there or know people from Britain, they take their tea very seriously. It's a love affair that dates back centuries now. First, before we get going to this, a history lesson, courtesy of The Great Big Story. Nothing says Britain more than... Nope. Nope. Keep going. Ah, oh, yes. There it is. A nice cup of tea. We know we have China to thank for introducing tea to the Western world. But how did it make its way to England and become the cultural obsession it is today? Well, that's all thanks to one Portuguese woman. The year, 1662. The person? Catherine of Braganza. She had just won the hand of England's King Charles II. With the help of a very large dowry, including money, treasures and spices, this worthwhile trade made her the Queen of England, Scotland and Ireland. When she arrived to her new homeland, 
she brought with her packets of loose leaf tea in crates labelled Transport de Ervas Aromaticas. It's a theory that this was later abbreviated to T-E-A. T. Isn't that fascinating? I had no idea that that was the history of tea in Britain. So needless to say, tea time, high tea, it's all become a big deal. So heaven forbid a North American, especially an American, should offer up advice to them on how to make a better cup of tea. But that's exactly what chemist and tea lover Michel Francel did in a new book called Steeped, the Chemistry of Tea, published by Britain's Royal Society of Chemistry, no less. Uh, one, uh, the tea, one of the tea tips that's stirring things up these days and landing said author in hot water has to do with suggesting that adding a pinch of salt uh, blocks the chemical mechanism that makes tea taste bitter. So if you don't like your tea bitter, a little pinch of salt will work. There are others. Warming the milk before you pour it in. Uh, the kind of cup you should be using. Uh, not using boiling water. An energetic squeezing of the tea bag. Well, all of it kind of landed with a thud in Britain. The Guardian, which is a pretty, um, you know, pretty serious paper called it outrageous outrageous tea recipe involving a pinch of salt draws u.s embassy comment which it did i'll mention what it was the daily mail said american scientist reveals her secret to the perfect cup of tea but adding hot milk with salt risks leaving brits at boiling point um other articles said the special relationship between the two g7 countries has possibly possibly been imperiled by an american scientist claim that britain's favorite brew requires a pinch of salt the u.s embassy in london stepped in to cool brewing British fears, it said, assuring them that the unthinkable notion was not official U.S. policy. The book is called Steep the Chemistry of Tea. Of course, after water, tea is the most popular beverage in the world. More than 2 billion cups a day. 2 billion cups a day are consumed. 5 million tons of dried leaves are harvested each year. We want to find out more about all this controversy to spill the tea with us, so to speak, is Michelle Franzel, chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania and author of Steep, the controversial Steeped, the Chemistry of Tea. Michelle, thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Tell me a bit about the inspiration for this, because uh, you, you pointed out something quite fascinating. We, as, as humans, globally, we drink an awful lot of the, out of the stuff. We don't seem to research it much or didn't traditionally. Right. Turns out there's a huge chemistry literature on tea, which sort of starts in well, a little after the middle of the 20th century, but there was a long hiatus where people really weren't researching it. And it is the world's most popular beverage after water. And I got started because a chemist friend tweeted out, um, is there any advantage to a tetrahedral tea bag? Or does the shape of the tea bag not matter? And I wondered, do chemists actually know that? So I looked in the chemistry literature and sure enough, people have studied the size and shape of tea bags and what works best. Turns out the shape doesn't matter, just the size. Right. Those tetrahedral ones are those really cool, fancy, triangular yeah. kind of ones, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I always thought it was just sort of you paying paying for the design that they're quite, they're pretty. But but I suppose that, I mean, clearly when it comes to chemistry, all of this matters, right? The, the, the contact right. between tea, water, the shape of the tea, what's happened to the tea beforehand, all of it is 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 pure chemistry. Right. There's chemistry from beginning to end on that, from, you know, what chemistry you marshal to make the tea in the first place, like the difference between making black tea and green tea is really just about an enzymatic reaction that you're allowing to happen or not allowing to happen. So right from the very start of picking it, you're already kind of messing with the chemistry down to what they call, um, and I love, the agony of the leaves. You know, when you put leaves into into water and get that first contact, they kind of unroll mm -hmm. um, and they look like they're writhing around. So, um, so people sometimes call it the agony of the leaves. So those fancy tea bags, they're 
good if they have a lot of extra space because tea needs like room to expand. Otherwise, the water can't get in there. And, you know, chemistry tells you, you want good contact between the solvent, the water, and, um, and those tea leaves. I was embarrassed to say that when I read that, uh, I mean, I, I think, not that I ever thought about it too too concretely, but that I didn't realize that green tea and black tea are exact, come from the same leaves. They're exactly the same thing. It's just the way they're grown. I mean, the way they're handled is slightly different. Right, right. And I mean, we tend not to think about it. So if you go look at tea, you know, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of tea sitting on the on the shelf. Um, and for a long time, when they were importing tea from China into into England, they didn't realize that it came from the same plant. So I guess no one told them. Yeah. Uh, you only focused on, just for, I mean, tea covers a wide breadth of things. You've really focused on one kind of a broad family of tea, right? Yes, yes. I really only focused on the kind of tea that's made from the tea plant, the camellia tea plant. And I didn't focus on herbal teas. Um, I left all of that out. I could probably write a whole nother book about those, which are also fascinating. But this one plant gives rise to really six or seven different styles of tea, really broad styles of tea. So there was plenty to think about. One of the, you know, clearly this has gotten a lot, you'll, you'll, you know, you know, firsthand, this has got an awful lot of attention. Tell me a bit about this idea of making the perfect cup and the whole notion of salt, because I think one thing that most people have never thought of putting in a cup of tea is salt. And wow, has everyone glommed on to that one part of your 222 page book? Right, right, right. You know, it's, it's not even a full page in the book, but it really has gotten people's attention. So the book I really wrote to help people like hack their cup of tea. So here, if you know a little bit about the chemistry and you know what you want in a cup of tea, maybe you can change it up a little bit to get more of what you want for your cup of tea. So in some ways, there's no really perfect cup of tea except what's the perfect cup for you. But lots of people like to um, brew it a little extra long to get more antioxidants in, right? They're drinking it for the health benefits, so, but then it makes it a little bitter. And it turns out that adding a bit of salt, like not enough to taste. I've seen people on some of these shows, like put a whole <laughs> teaspoon in. I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Um, if, if it tastes salty, you've added too much. Um, so a little bit of salt in and um, it, the sodium ions in it block the perception of bitterness. This isn't all that new. Um, so there's an 8th century uh, manuscript from China, which talks about adding a little bit of salt to tea. It blocks some of the bitter and makes the tea taste just a tiny bit sweeter, a little smoother. Um, Interesting. And so, you know, just a so pinch, like, like just a few, like just a pinch or so. Right, just a pinch or so. Really, you know, again, if you can taste it, taste salty, added too much. And that was something I learned writing the book. I didn't know it until I um, did the research for the book. Are you, were you surprised at all about the reaction? I mean, we, I shouldn't say the global reaction. It's really the British reaction because, of course, right. how one makes a cup of tea in England is, is or in, in Britain, period, Ireland, too, is somewhat, I mean, it's kind of a fighting, fighting, we're fighting topic over there. I, I, I gather the reaction there is, it's kind of, it was even addressed by the U.S. Embassy. It's got, gotten a lot the of US attention. The U.S. Embassy weighed in, the cabinet office weighed in. Um, Somebody told me that the U.S. and U.K. ambassadors have, have waded into the whole thing. I was a bit surprised. The salt piece is interesting. And so when the, someone asked me at the Royal Society, you know, can I write a list of interesting facts from the book? That was one I included. And I had no idea that that would be the one that would go so viral. Um, but I do understand that part of the attraction of tea is kind of the ritual that goes around it. 
we mess with people's rituals at our peril. And I guess I mess with people's rituals. So there we go. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the British have always looked at, at the new world. Well, us and with sort of disdain when it comes to how we make tea somehow we do it all either we do it all wrong or their perception is that we do it all wrong right i mean i saw one clip where somebody said well she can't know anything because she's an american <laughs> uh, and i mean i don't drink coffee i've drunk tea my whole life and i've certainly drunk lots of very good tea in britain and in japan and other places and i've spent you know two and a half years embedded in the literature about this. Um, I read 500 papers, drank, I don't know, 480 some odd cups of tea. And the, maybe the other point to make is the people who invited me to do this is the Royal Society of Chemistry of Britain, right? Who put out a great tweet that say they stand behind me. <laughs> well, it's, it's good to know that your colleagues, I mean, let's be honest, the, the problem is that this isn't, you're not a chef, you're a chemist, right? So so right, you're basically yeah. describing the chemistry of tea. And I think sometimes that the science gets lost, right? What you're saying is, if you add sodium to this, it has this impact that you might enjoy. Like, don't think right. about it as, as replacing salt, sugar with salt. It's actually, it's actually doing something chemically. Right, exactly. I mean, the, the whole point is here now and you know what the chemistry is doing. And if you would like that, you can try it. And if you don't want to, some people like their tea really bitter. Great. Don't put salt in. But yeah, and it's funny to, to think that people will say the tradition kind of trumps the chemistry in some ways. If they're making it this way, the chemistry can't possibly be true. Yeah. I, and what's interesting about it, too, is if you think about it, as many cups of tea as people drink worldwide, and we'll, maybe we'll just concentrate on, on, on Britain or you know, even Canada, they drink an awful lot of tea here. There isn't really like it's not like you see you'll turn on a cooking program and they'll say, hey, let's here's how to make a perfect cup of tea. Everyone just sort of does it reflexively. Right. Sure. Your grandparents I mean, you've did been it. doing it your whole life. I mean, I can I can make tea in my sleep because, I, of course, I have. That's how I wake up in the morning. Right. Yeah. And so for me, it was kind of interesting to write the book and really think about step by step what I was doing and why. And what's and happening. Yeah. yeah, and I've changed a few things up. Like I, you know, recognize that those little infusers are don't give enough room for the tea to expand. And I use loose tea, at least at home. And so I ended up getting, you know, one of these really big, an infuser that's almost the same size as my mug. Oh, and, wow. And that gives the tea lots of room to expand. And sure enough, I get a better cup. So I learned some things from doing this too. Michelle Francel is a chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. She's author of Steeped, the Chemistry of Tea, which has been getting a lot of attention of late. I mean, there there is people are very, very dedicated to the way they make a cup of tea. And in this book, Michelle, of course, as a chemist, looks into some of the ways what's happening chemically in that said cup and then offers some hints on how to alter it if there's things that you like more. So, for instance, if it's too bitter, maybe a pinch of salt of that. Effort. That uh, that got a lot of people's attention. Um, Michelle, some other things that you that you found out that were interesting that maybe not counterintuitive, uh, but but a few things that you thought enhance a cup of tea depending on what it is that you like. And you sort of had a list of things that you that you thought really work. And some of them some of them were I mean not that they caught me as a surprise, but they're things I don't do. Uh, what are some of them? So one of the things that I think it's easy to skip is pre warming the pot or the cup. It wasn't something I routinely did. You know, my dad always did it when he made me a pot of tea. Um, it was a little bit part of his ritual was to warm the pot up. And, you know, you hear that that's a good idea. But until I actually wired my teapots with uh, temperature sensors, I had no idea how fast the temperature was dropping when I oh. poured boiling water in. And if the temperature drops too far, it doesn't adequately extract the caffeine. And um, I have a chapter called The Drug in the Cup. Right. Um, and bi biochemists would kind of consider um, caffeine um, to be the drug of choice that 
uh, is coming from tea. And so if you're drinking tea to get, you know, awake in the morning um, or to stay awake in a long meeting in the afternoon, you want the caffeine. And if that temperature is dropped too low, you're not getting what you think you're getting. Interesting. And you also cup size. I mean, this is what something you probably would know if you've been if you've had been in a tea ceremony in Japan or China, that the cup sizes tend to be very small. Uh, and they obviously the, and they heat the cups up too, by the way, uh, right, beforehand. Right. Yeah. So the size of the, the size of the cup also matters. Right. And the size and the shape both matter. If you put have a really big cup of tea, by the time you get to the bottom, it's probably cooled below the temperature that's good for drinking. And also when it starts to cool, it does something called cream and the tea gets kind of cloudy. Um, so if you look at a cup of tea that you made in, you know, half an hour ago and look at the look at it, it's no longer clear, but it's cloudy. And that, again, has to do with some of the um, good tasting compounds have now kind of collected in little clumps. Um, so you're not tasting them. The shape and the size both matter. And they also matter in terms of the shape. If you've got too much surface area, like a tall, thin pot or cup, that dumps a lot of heat to the atmosphere fast. And again, temperature is really key in making good tea. Right. So a shorter, broader cup would make more sense. Yeah, there's that um, that song that, you know, a lot of us learn in elementary school. I'm a little teapot short and stout. Right. Right. And the, the short and stout is something where you've got the volume to surface area ratio um, is better. A lot of volume for a little surface area. So you lose less heat. I was in Ireland with my mom years ago and we ordered a pot of tea and the person serving it proceeded to sort of squeeze the tea bag and I thought my mother was going to faint but it turns but it turns out that you th that's not a terrible idea it's not a terrible idea and that was another surprise to me when I did the research for the book so someone has studied the dunking and squeezing of tea bags you get more antioxidants out when you squeeze that tea bag at the end the dunking is good because it agitates it you get a lot of contact between the tea leaves um, but the squeezing gives you a little more antioxidant. And if you're drinking it for the health benefits, that's a good thing. Um, I think etiquette people and um, and people who um, are drinking it perhaps less for the health benefits are pretty appalled at the thought of squeezing that last bit out of the tea. Right. And lemon, too. I mean, people use lemon in tea all the time. But, you've, you, but even just a little drop you found had some chemical reaction that also might help, too. Right. So if you make your tea in the microwave, which I'm going to say, that that's another thing that would upset the Britons terribly. You don't use a microwave to make tea. But lots of people in the U.S. will throw a cup of water in the microwave to heat it up to the boil. You know, they right. don't have a kettle in their office or whatever. And when you do that, you sometimes see a white film form on the top of your tea. And that is called, very appetizingly, tea scum. Right. And it's not so different from the scum in your bathtub. And again, it's kind of collected some of these um, compounds that are have good taste. So you're losing some of the taste of the tea. Um, and you can get rid of the tea scum in the same way you can get rid of the scum in a bathtub. You can use citrate, which is in lemon citric acid, um, to kind of, we say in chemistry terms, chelate, but to sort of cover up the magnesium ions that are involved in this formation. Um, and it'll get rid of the tea scum. Now, this is a time-honored time argument. I've heard couples have these arguments, milk first or milk in first, milk in after. I've always oh. been thought it has to be after, it has to be after, well, but that's just me. Well, if you make your tea with a tea bag in a mug, it has to be after. Otherwise, you put cold tea in and you've lowered the temperature and boy, you know, lower temperatures are not good for brewing tea. There's a great funny story 
about statistics where um, a woman biochemist and the man she was eventually going to marry and a mathematician were chatting. And she said, I can tell the difference between milk in first or milk in last. And the statistician said, I'm not sure you can, but here's a test that you, we could use to determine that. Turned out, A, she could, and B, that test became the famous null hypothesis, which statisticians use all the time. <laughs> so um, I love that T has kind of, you know, like provoked some good math. Absolutely. Well, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I, I'm glad this has got, there is no such thing as bad publicity, by the way. So I'm glad so many people are paying attention because it's something we do, a lot of us do every single day, more, perhaps more than once. So I'm glad that someone dug into the chemistry of it. So we're at least, we may be angry, but we're smarter. And that always helps. <laughs> I, I, I really hope that people find you know more delight in their tea and um, from reading the book. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> This is a really cool story that I saw this week. Archaeologists have uncovered a cluster of lost cities in the Amazon rainforest in what is now Ecuador, an area that may well have been home to thousands of farmers around 2,000 years ago, uh, again, in the foothill of the Andes in what is now Ecuador. The settlements were occupied by the Apano people between around 500 BC and 3 to 600 AD. That's a period uh, about the same time as the Roman Emperor Empire, rather, the Roman Empire in research, in Europe, rather, the researchers found. Um, so they're kind of about the same time. That's a lot of people, by the way. I don't think London wasn't that big at that point in time. Uh, so what they found originally was these earthen mounds and buried roads, first noticed more than two decades ago by an archaeologist, a French archaeologist by the name of uh, Stephen Rustin. Uh, they mapped, they used laser technology to map it out, and they revealed the sites to be part of this really dense network of settlements and roadways. Uh, there were residential and ceremonial buildings. Um, again, they were surrounded by agricultural fields and drainage canals. In other words, this was a settlement. This was civilization. Um, the largest roads, imagine, 33 feet, 10 meters wide, and stretched for 6 to 12 miles. Probably nicer than some of the roads we have here at this point in time. It is, at this point, kind of difficult to estimate how many people were living there, but they think it could have been 10,000, maybe 15, 30,000. All very interesting. And it also changes our notion to some extent, although it's been changing over time, about what exactly a pre-Columbian societies in, in the Americas looked like, what they were like, how sophisticated were they? Well, the answer is very, as it turns out. Chris Fisher is an archaeologist. He's the director of the Earth Archive, professor of anthropology at Colorado State University. He wasn't involved in this research directly, but it is really in his wheelhouse. Chris, thanks for your time tonight. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, I always find anything that, that involves sort of changing the way we view the Americas, where we all live now, is a really interesting thing to do. And, and this, is, uh, this one really does. What, what, what's been unearthed here? This is a, a really fascinating study. First of all, this is a, a really great example of a long-term archaeological project taking advantage of new technology to better understand the long-term settlement patterns and the ways that people modified the environment in this particular part of Ecuador. It is also a study that's at the spearhead of repopulating what I would refer to as repopulating the Amazon. So remember, at the time of European contact, people in the Americas didn't have any natural resistance to old world diseases, and it resulted in a mortality event that may have wiped out 90% of the population within the first 50 or 60 years after European contact. So it's an entire history that we don't know anything about. And because of the climate crisis, we have a limited time to figure it out. 
And so LIDAR is one way that, that we can do that, that we can repopulate the Amazon or repopulate the Americas, really, because the same revolution is happening in the Maya region. Because in the absence of actual history and of advanced archaeology, we sort of told our own tale about what had been there before. And, and I guess looking at what's been discovered by you and others recently, including this, we were wrong, very wrong. Yeah, we were. there were just lots of gaps. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I want to pay homage to all of the archaeologists that came before me. And all of that archaeological work that they, that painstaking archaeological work that they did, walking across the landscape, laboriously walking across the landscape, recording everything that they saw on paper, on paper maps, right? That set the stage for what we're able to do now. If we didn't have that theoretical background that, that was, you know, sort of gifted to us by those generations of archaeologists that came before, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to sort of interpret these LIDAR records in such a rapid-fire way. Tell me a bit about what was found here. So we'll sort of travel to the foothills foothills of the Andes in Ecuador, uh, which is, a, I've been to Ecuador. It's a remarkable place because you have all the topographies of the Amer of, the, of South America there. You have the ocean, obviously. Uh, you have the Andes, uh, and you have the Amazon basin. So it, no, no doubt it was a... It was a pretty decent place to set up shop uh, even two, two, 2,000 years ago, two, uh, longer. It's an incredibly rich area today, and it obviously it was in the past. And it's supported, uh, as evidenced by this study, it supported a extremely large population centered around several big ceremonial centers. I think anthropologically, we can invoke the term city. <laughs> and, right. you know ancient city. And to be able to invoke that term, there's a number of boxes that we have to tick off. But, you know, be, being being able to say that it's a city is more than just having a dense concentration of people. It's the way that it's organized. It's the way that the landscape is organi organized around that place, etc. And, and we can definitely say that for these centers. The now, authors are trying to place this within a global context. So, you know, they make analogies to cities in the old world, maybe Teotihuacan in the basin of Mexico, emphasizing the size and the scale of this place that, you know, people knew this site was here before. People have worked there for a long time, but they didn't know the scale or the extent of it. We know so little about our world. There's so much left to discover. And um, this is just one example of that. Tell me a bit about LIDAR for, for listeners who don't know. What exactly is it? So LIDAR is an, it's actually an old technology. There's a LIDAR instrument on the moon. It was in one of the Apollo missions. Archaeologists use terrestrial LIDAR. There's LIDAR in self-driving cars, et cetera. The kind of LIDAR that we're talking about today is airborne LIDAR. So from some sort of airborne platform, helicopter, fixed-wing aircraft, drone, eventually it will be instruments from space. And there is a LIDAR instrument on the ISS, but um, the resolution isn't great enough right now for, for archaeologists to use it to do these kinds of studies. From that airborne platform, a grid of infrared beams is shot down 500,000 pulses per second to the ground. That grid is so dense that those beams will penetrate the ground surface, will penetrate to the ground surface. So when one of them, those beams strikes something on the ground, it could be the top of a tree, could be a branch, could be a leaf, could be the ground surface, returns back to the instrument, gives you a measure of depth. There's a bunch of sophisticated 
electronics on the the aircraft, helicopter, whatever itself that gives you the pitch and the on, the speed and the location of the aircraft. Put all of that together and it creates a three-dimensional cloud of points. And by electronically filtering those points for things that you're interested in, you can, for example, highlight the ground surface and all the archaeology on it. If you're interested in the trees, you can, and I hate to say it, it pains me to say this, but you can digitally strip away the archaeology right. and just look at the trees. So they're kind of like the ultimate conservation records in that sense. Chris, when you look at, at some of what's what's the complexity of this is really interesting because I think if I was reading this properly, in the past we've always sort of thought of this as being villages that may or, that may have had contact, villages that may have dealt with each other. But what this shows is something far more complicated than that, that in fact thousands of people were altering the landscape around them, building roads. I mean, this was a settlement in the way that we understand them now. This was, a, this was a city, and I think we can also probably invoke civilization. That's a, a really sort of groundbreaking piece to be able to demonstrate. And it, it's a testament to the, to the researchers, the quality of the, the work that they did to, to be able to say that. Just like any civilization globally, these people were completely embedded in a human-modified landscape. So I think that begs the question, is this an anomaly? Is this the only one in the Amazon? And the, the fact of the matter is absolutely not. We tend to see the Amazon as, which is, you know, in the Amazon, of course, is a, an incredibly diverse place. But we tend to see the Amazon as some sort of pristine tropical forest that has existed since, you know, time primeval. And that's absolutely not the case. And as this study demonstrates, and the studies that will come after it for different parts of the Amazon, and that phenomenon has already started to happen with LIDAR, and, it, and it's only going to accelerate from, from here on out, the Amazon is actually an abandoned garden. That has some really fascinating implications for how we see the Amazon and to, to understand how the Amazon evolved. And also what it teaches us about, I mean, not only does it sort of disturb well, it, it enhances what we know about about it already, but one would expect too that it uh, that as we look at how we're how it's treated today, it would it, there there is something to be learned too about how it was farmed and how it was handled agriculturally at the time. I was fascinated to see what it was they were growing at the time because many of the things that they were growing then would have wound up on our dinner plates or European dinner plates, you know, fifteen hundred years later, right, or for thirteen hundred years later at this point. Yeah, and you know, this is a this is a piece of the Colombian exchange, right? This exchange of plants and animals and diseases, unfortunately, between the old and the new worlds that shaped our modern world. And so from the new world, of course, we have crops that are pervasive in our everyday lives globally. Corn is one of those things. Something that you you know we had mentioned earlier that is that is from the specifically was was domesticated in, in the Amazon, of course, is chocolate. And I can't imagine a modern world without chocolate. In terms of our everyday lives, we truly are indebted to um, our ancestors who domesticated these plants and animals that we rely on every day 
So where to from here then? Because I gather one of the mysteries, and I know you're not involved in this research specifically, but I know one of the mysteries here is just how many people were there in this particular area. The estimates, I guess, are around 10,000. It could be more. Uh, but there's a lot of work to be done in sort of, I guess, again, to use that word, unearth what, what existed there 2,000 years ago. And keep in mind, 10,000 would make that settlement in the foothills of the Andes and what is now Ecuador uh, the same size as London was at the time under the Romans, which is, I mean, that's something to, that's eye-opening. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to trash London, <laughs> but... You know, it was the, a small the, place then. Yeah. The New World, yeah. But the New World cities at that at that period of time absolutely dwarfed London and the, their size and complexity. So London would have been a, a hamlet. You know, it wasn't a hamlet, obviously, but it would have been a hamlet compared to some of these places. And those population estimates, you know, creating population estimates for ancient populations using archaeological evidence is, is kind of tricky. There's formulas and there's a huge literature on how to do that. And there's formulas that you can use. And I don't know where that 10,000 person estimate actually came from, because I know that the researchers are being kind of careful not to give a population estimate right. at one point because any population estimate they give is good. I think it's probably going to be more than 10,000 people and it's just going to surprise the heck out of everybody. And it's going to add another dimension of, you know, hassle, hassle for them basically to, to talk about it and defend it. And I don't think they wanted to necessarily go there. I wouldn't be surprised if that number is, if, if it's actually two, three, four times that number. Wow. Um, but I'm just, but that's just an off the cuff, complete guess. So where do they, where do they go from here? I think it's, and one of the things that we've tried to do unsuccessfully so far is to um, promote the scanning of the entire Amazon. Um, and as we've mentioned before, the Amazon is incredibly diverse. It encompasses, you know, multiple modern countries that have their own political heritage and speak different languages, et cetera. The Amazon is changing, as is the globe, is changing dramatically due to the climate crisis. And it will fundamentally change within the next decade or the next couple of decades. And so we have a very limited time to be able to document places like those that were documented by um, Stefan uh, Rostein and all of the Ecuadorian collaborators mentioned in this study before they fundamentally change or disappear forever. And that is one of the big takeaways, I think, from this study and several other LIDAR studies that have come out in, in you know, really big academic venues in the last couple of years is that there is so much left to know and discover about the Amazon, but the clock is ticking. And we really, really need to fund and promote this kind of archaeological research so we can unlock that the, the prehistory of the Amazon before it's too late. Chris, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Uh, a much-anticipated decision today. Let's head to The Hague. A much-anticipated decision today from the UN's top court in a case filed by South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza and asking it for to order a halt in its military offensive in the Palestinian territory. Israel rejected the accusation of genocide and it asked the court to throw the charges out. So we got an interim decision today uh, from the 17-judge panel at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. It did not dismiss the case. Uh, as had been requested by Israel, did not order a ceasefire, as had been asked for by South Africa. But it did 
uh, do this. It ordered Israel to take emergency steps to prevent genocide in Gaza and to allow humanitarian aid into the area. The court also ordered Israel to take steps to prevent and punish the incitement of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, essentially to take steps to try to reduce casualties in Gaza, but stopping short of demanding a stop to its military offensive against Hamas. Here is ICJ President Joni Donahue. She's an American. In light of the following, the court concludes that prima facie, it has jurisdiction pursuant to Article 9 of the Convention to entertain the case. Given this conclusion, the court considers that it cannot accede to Israel's request that the case be removed from the general list. So that in of itself is a pretty big deal. Now, of course, as soon as this judgment came down, uh, this interim judgment there, you know, the politics around what it meant, because it wasn't definitive in any one way or another. But it is considered, uh, I mean, it could take years, by the way, this is an interim decision. It could take years for the full case to be brought by South Africa to be considered. Uh, some see Friday's ruling as a major victory for South Africa because it confirms there is a plausible case that Israel may be committing genocidal acts in Gaza and must face a full hearing on that question. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, says his country has every right to defend itself. Our war is against Hamas terrorists, not against Palestinian civilians. We will continue to facilitate humanitarian assistance and to do our utmost to keep civilians out of harm's way, even as Hamas uses civilians as human shields. We will continue to do what is necessary to defend our country and defend our people. Here at home, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says Canada will closely follow the case against Israel at the ICJ, but is stating no clear position on its interim ruling today, which is sort of par for the course at this point. Joining me now is John Allen. He's the former Canadian ambassador to Israel and a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, John, thanks for your time on a Friday night. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Hard to make. I mean, I, I think this is perhaps what uh, what was expected out of this decision, but uh but just your reaction to it uh, off off the bat in terms of what was what was said by the ICJ today and what kind of impact it might have. Well, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, there was this prima facie case, this plausibility of genocide, which uh, allowed the court uh, to make its provisional orders. Um, there still will be a, a determination, a final determination on admissibility and jurisdiction to come. And then, as we've heard, in uh, two, three years, uh, a final decision on genocide. So the fact uh, that uh, there was a plausibility of genocide could be uh, determined to be a, a victory for South Africa and for Palestinians but uh, as also mentioned, they didn't call for a ceasefire, as uh, the ICJ did, for example, when uh, the case uh, between Ukraine and Russia was decided where they did call for uh, a ceasefire and, uh, and for uh, Russia to withdraw. Um, now, the fact that um, they've asked Israel uh, to do more to protect civilians, to increase humanitarian assistance, and uh, to prevent and punish incitement uh, are clear instructions to them. And uh, they've been asked to report back in a month. So it'll be interesting to see um, whether Israel takes these uh, orders seriously and actually changes its behavior, uh, reduces the number of civilian uh, deaths and casualties, and significantly increases humanitarian assistance. I think there'll be no question 
that they're going to be telling their ministers to keep their mouths shut because um, it was these uh, statements by uh, ministers, not those in the war cabinet, by others that, uh, you know, in part brought them before the court. So it's a mixed bag. Um, Israel uh, sort of uh, saying that what they're doing already is consistent with the court and uh, and uh, the court saying you should be doing more. Um, uh, but certainly Israel's happy that they weren't told that uh, they had to uh, cease uh, the war as it is, and um, and it, this was in effect um, a positive ruling in terms of their claim that they are engaging in self-defense. The court seemed to recognize that, which is important for Israel. Right. Uh, just so the listeners understand, the International Court of Justice actually has no enforcement power, so it can't really do anything to make sure this is done. It's more of a, in some senses, while it has legal standing here, uh, it is more of a court of public opinion to some extent, or at least a court that other allies must pay attention to. And that sort of, that's what it kind of boils down to here, I guess. How do you think this ruling lands in Washington and in London and Ottawa, perhaps? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, if um, Israel were uh, to completely ignore the wording, the wording and the order, um, there is a possibility that the matter could be um, discussed in the UN Security Council, which does have enforcement powers. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, and the United States would undoubtedly veto it anyways. But just to say that there is a possibility of some enforcement, not by the court itself, but by the Security Council. Um, I think in Washington, we've already heard um, that um, the uh, United States doesn't uh, think much of the charge of genocide against Israel. On the other hand, the United States has been demanding of Israel that they reduce civilian deaths and casualties and increase humanitarian assistance. So in some ways, this is just uh, an order that um, builds on what the U.S. has been demanding of Netanyahu uh, already. Um, and in that regard, they're probably happy. Um, but I don't know whether we'll see a significant difference um, going forward. Um, uh, other uh, countries, uh, the Europeans, uh, have essentially welcomed um, the decision because they too have been uh, seeking um, action by uh, Israel to reduce death, injuries, and increase humanitarian assistance. John, what have you made of Canada's position on this? Because the last time uh, there was a vote, a non-binding vote, on a ceasefire uh, back in December, Canada actually voted in favor, it, in favor of it, which was a change of our traditional position. Uh, the Ambassador Bob Ray, of course, explained it as being consistent with their demands for a ceasefire and, and you know, uh, the return of the hostages and so on. I mean, they made it more all-encompassing. But Canada's position on this, even today, has been... A bit, a bit uh, hard, to, hard to, hard to figure out, to be honest. Well, uh, I, I think um, initially uh, on the ICJ, Canada uh, indicated its support for the court in general, but some skepticism about the charge of genocide against Israel. I think uh, Minister Jolie's statement today was a little more nuanced. Um, trying less 
to comment on the decision of the court, but to support um, the court in its actions, which I think is the appropriate way to go. Um, uh, Canada actually intervened in the case of the Gambia versus Myanmar, and they intervened in the Russia-Ukraine cases. And in those cases, they uh, argued for a broad interpretation of uh, the Genocide Convention. Uh, and so I think they have to be a little careful here. Um, and and really, frankly, a, a country that uh, respects the rule of law should uh, do so, whether it's domestically or internationally. Yeah, it certainly puts Canada in, in a situation where it uh, probably the safest route is to simply say it's going to uh, going to respect the court's decisions, right? Because Canada, of course, has been quite a, a proponent of the ICJ over the years. What do you make of then at this point of what's been unfolding then in Gaza over the past little while? There's been some updates. Obviously, Benjamin Netanyahu, if you um, recently said that he didn't believe in a two-state solution, uh, which caused some no doubt caused some headaches amongst allies. Uh, but what do you make of the state of the war right now? Because it uh, it, it you get the sense that whatever Israel has set out to do, it, it must nearly be, it must nearly be uh, achieved. To some, you one would think, uh, the, the place there's not much left of northern Gaza. Well, uh, I mean, a few things, Ben. Uh, first of all, uh, the fact that um, despite all that the United States and Joe Biden has done for Israel and for Bibi Netanyahu, visiting immediately after the attack. Um, bringing two aircraft carriers, a task force, to the Mediterranean and warning Hezbollah and Iran, now fending off Houthi missiles and missiles at their embassies in Iraq. All that Biden has done, and what does he get for, uh, for all of that effort? Bibi essentially dissing him by um, uh, publicly stating that he'll have nothing to do with a two-state solution, which is, of course, his position for the last uh, 15 or 16 years. As for the state of the war, um, in fact, unfortunately, Israel has not achieved its aims. It's not um, killed even one of the three major political military leaders in Gaza. It's done some serious damage to various um, Hamas battalions. It's done some serious damage, as you mentioned, um, to um, housing and to other infrastructure. I think it's probably done some damage uh, to the tunnels. Uh, but it has not achieved its aims, which were, A, to eliminate Hamas, obviously a, a name that was uh, overstated uh, in the heat of um, the attack and wanting to respond to it, and uh, getting the hostages back. Um, so neither of those main aims have been achieved uh, to date. And, um, and there's a raging debate, as you know, in Israel right now between those who want to prioritize the hostage release and those who want to prioritize uh, the continuation and the prosecution of the war, uh, John. Tell you mean you, you've uh, tell me a bit about about UNRWA for for people who don't understand it because they're quite quite an important agency in the region. They are an important agency, and this is really shocking news. And um, UNRWA um, was created um, shortly after. Uh, the War of Independence, um, before even uh, the UN 
HCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugee Convention, was uh, was created uh, that now deals with all other refugees. But uh, UNRWA was created, and it now essentially um, provides health, education, and other social services um, in um, the Gaza Strip. It also operates in Jordan, Syria. And Lebanon, but um, the special case is is really Gaza, and there are some UNRWA uh, refugee camps in the West Bank as well. Um, I guess the the situation is that if UNRWA wasn't there, Israel would have to be providing these services to the Palestinians uh, in these refugee uh, areas and uh, in Gaza. Um, so that's what it does. Um, it, it has long been criticized by uh, Israel, although Israel's never actually called for it to be um, uh, removed from Gaza. But it's criticized by Israel for things like allowing its textbooks um, to contain anti-Israel, anti-Zionist um, uh, wording, uh, and it's been criticized for a certain bias against Israel. Um, uh, and so that's the situation. Uh, it, it provides a, a, a needed service. It operates in a very difficult situation because the government in play in Gaza is Hamas. And you can't deliver all that aid and education and health uh, alongside this government without having relationships with it now right. that said um having relationships with it and participating in the october 7 massacre uh if that's the case if that's what happened uh are two very different things it's not clear to me uh, based on what i've read and heard what exactly these people are allegedly charged with were they actually involved in the murders and the kidnapping? Did they provide information that um, allowed that to happen? I don't know. Um, but either way, there are various serious charges. The UN is committed to investigating and prosecuting criminally if um, there's some connection. I guess right. the last thing I would say is there's a there's a you know, as with an embassy, uh, a Canadian embassy, there are locally engaged people in the, in the embassy, and then there are people that come from Canada uh, to work in the embassy. Well, with UNRWA, there are expats, uh, a minority, um, who actually work in Gaza, and the vast majority of the 12 or 13,000 um, employees are Palestinians. Um, and um, uh, so that that's just a, another factor right. to take into account. I suppose very quickly, the right, the right move by Canada then to suspend uh, further aid at this point until that investigation is complete. I think so. I, I think it's probably the right move. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think we should be tarnishing UNRWA, and I don't think we should be tarnishing the United Nations because of this. I'm not saying it's just a case of bad apples, but. But there are these are twelve people out of I don't know how many thousands, um, 15, and think, uh, yeah. yeah. And so if if they're guilty, then uh, they should be dealt with. But I don't think it means that um, you know uh, 
any more, for example, than when uh, UN peacekeepers in Haiti were charged with uh, uh, sexual offenses that, you know, the entire UN has to be um, criticized for. Right. Well, John, as always, thank you for your insight on this. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, Look forward to speaking to you again. 